The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you join me one more time in prayer before we open God's Word together? Father, I do pray that now in our time of opening your Word that you would direct our hearts toward you. You have revealed your heart to us in your word, and it's our desire to give our hearts to you as we study your word. So give us good attention, give us listening ears, give us soft hearts that would be open to the work of your spirit this morning. I pray, Lord God, that you would have your way among us that we would draw great strength and nourishment for our souls from your word today. And so we look to you and we ask for this kindness. I pray also, just very practically, that you would sustain my voice in preaching this morning, that there would be no distraction from what you desire to communicate to your church this morning. And so be glorified in our time here now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Genesis 10 and 11. All right. As we gather together at our elders meeting, I said it's kind of like a genealogy sandwich that we get in our passage this morning. The bulk of our attention is going to be in this first part of chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. But we are going to look at these lists of names and and a few in particular on the front and the back end that really help us to understand this story and to know what it is that God is doing here. You see, God is our Heavenly Father. That, that's, that's how we're taught by Jesus to pray, is it not? Our Father in heaven. And so we pray to our Heavenly Father. We relate to God as a father. We are his children. And as earthly parents, we, we start to get some sense a better idea of this relationship that we have with God in the relationship we have with our children. So if you're a parent, you are likely familiar with the response of a child when they are given instruction, and that response being one of stubbornness. When you're giving them instruction and they defy it. Or maybe you don't have that experience as a parent, but I would suggest that you could go and ask your parent if they ever experienced that. And I'm sure 
that they would be able to tell you stories. As parents, you see, we have understanding, we have experience, not that we are perfect, but we have this understanding and we have experience that informs the instruction that we give to our children. And as parents, we love them. We want the very best for our children, don't we? We do. And because of that, we place restrictions on them because we know that if there are certain things we permit, it will be for their harm. And so we place restrictions not to steal away their enjoyment, or we give commands. We say, you must do this, not because we want them to struggle under a burden, but there are certain things that we command because we know it's for their good, that they would flourish, that they would experience peace. We don't want them suffering needlessly. For the good of our children, then there are things that we restrict. You should not do this. And there are things that we command. You should do that. Well, our passage this morning really presents much of that to us as well. It shows that God has a good purpose and that he has good plans. As a heavenly father, a good purpose and good plans. And we see in Genesis 10 and 11 that God is moving forward his plan of redemption. You remember all the way back to Genesis 3 when he was speaking to Eve and he was saying that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent? God is working to fulfill that. That would ultimately be accomplished in Jesus who would come and who would crush the head of the devil. Devil. And so we see God moving forward his his plan of redemption. And then we also see how God is frustrating the plans of man. Frustrating the plans of man where they go contrary to his purpose and contrary to his plans. And rather than these being points for us at which we should chafe. No, these should be evidences to us of God's goodness and his grace when he frustrates plans that are going contrary to his purpose and his plans. And just one note, as we look at Genesis 10 and 11, hopefully to avoid some confusion, they're not chronological And so as we look at Genesis 10 and 11, they're more thematic, not chronological. And if we read them chronologically, we would read in Genesis 10 of all of these different languages, and then we would get to Genesis 11, and we would read that everybody had the same language. We could take these, and we could actually swap them around if we were wanting to look at it chronologically, but that's not the purpose of Moses the author of the book of Genesis. He's telling us a story of what God is doing in the world and how he is working among men 
to carry out his purpose and his plans. So let's just jump into chapter 11 and verse 1. We read there that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if we were to take these verses and just pull them out of the context of the Bible and and what we know of what God has said so far and what God has been doing so far, we might read these and think, this looks pretty good, right? Unity. Everybody was together. They had one language. They had the same words. Isn't that unity? And look, they're baking bricks and they're using tar to stick them together. That's innovation. Mankind is moving forward. How wonderful. And then let's build a city and a tower that reaches all the way up to the heavens. And we'll make a name for ourselves. And you think, prestige. Wow. Great things, right? No. I hope that you're shaking your head and saying, no, no, because these things are contrary to the will of God. They are against what God has revealed and what God has commanded. Now, we read these things in this first set of verses in chapter 11, but I want to turn our attention back to chapter 10, starting in verse 8. This gives us even a little bit more story about Babel. Babel, where this tower was built and this city was established. In chapter 10, verse 8, now, this is in the list of the sons of Ham, Right? Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And those are the three sons that are listed, and the descendants and the nations that came from those three sons in Genesis chapter 10. That's what we have in Genesis chapter 10. It's often referred to as the table of nations. Now, Ham, he had sons. And in his offspring, we come across this man named, verse 8, Nimrod. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We're introduced to this man, Nimrod, and we're told more about Nimrod than really about anybody else in Genesis chapter 10. Well, why is this? 
Nimrod comes from the line of Ham. And if you remember last week, it was Ham who brought shame, who wanted to uncover the nakedness of his father Noah. And so as a result, whereas Japheth and Shem were blessed, Ham was singled out as being cursed. And we read this in Genesis chapter 9. Moses said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So that is referring to the line of Ham. The line of Ham, the descendants of Ham, would perpetually be the enemies of God's people. Just tuck that away as you read through the Old Testament and you come across the enemies of God's people. You can trace that back again and again to Ham and Ham's descendants. Now we're told about this man, Nimrod, and he was a mighty man and a mighty hunter. And we might read that and think this is some great commendation. That what we are being told about Nimrod was a good thing, was a great thing, but it's not. Again, do you remember back to Genesis chapter 6? We read about the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That was not a commendation in Genesis chapter 6. These mighty men, they saw what they want and they took it by force. They were not godly men. Similarly, Nimrod, a mighty man and a mighty hunter, he is not commended for that. He was one who took what he wanted by the use of force. In fact, as I was studying this week, what I came across time and again, many commentators believe that Nimrod, when it says he was a mighty hunter, we might think of a great marksman taking down his game and filling his freezer, but many commentators think that it was referring rather to his killing of men, a mighty hunter. He is a man of war. He is a man who is taking life. And so Nimrod, being a descendant of Ham, one of the enemies of God's people, and he is given special attention, and we see that from Nimrod, he establishes this city, verse 10 of chapter 10, named Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So from Ham, or Ham, excuse me, from Ham, the cursed descendant of Noah, we come to Nimrod. And now these are the enemies of what would become God's people. And from that, we get this kingdom established of Babel. Nimrod was not a man concerned with God's purpose and God's plans. That's what I want you to understand. Nimrod was not a man that was concerning himself with God's purpose and God's plans. He was interested in building his own kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom 
was Babel. He was concerned with his kingdom. And so it's no surprise that what we read in chapter 11 in verse 4 flies right in the face of what God has commanded the people. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And get this, this last part of verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see how wrong things have gone? What did God command Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, you say, that was Adam and Eve. That was, that was a long time ago. What about Noah? When Noah got off of the ark, God repeats this then to Noah as well in chapter 9. To Noah and to his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That means have offspring, have children, and fill up the earth. And now here we read Nimrod and the city of Babel. They're saying we are going to just plant ourselves right here. We want to bring everybody together, and we do not want to be dispersed over the earth. God said, fill the earth. We say, no, we are staying here. Nimrod and the city of Babel was going against God's clear commands. I hope that we can see this. And now, another thing I I, I want us to understand as, as we go through, I know we're covering a lot of history, and sometimes we start to read through the Bible and, and we can lose track of time. Do you ever do that where, where you're reading through stories and with a turn of a page, it's like 40 years, right? Noah goes into the wilderness and then he's back in Egypt and you don't realize that was, that was 40 years that just happened like that. Well, so too, the other th- can happen where we start reading all of these names and we think this must be thousands and thousands and thousands of years and all of this time that has passed. But that's not the case. This is actually a very short time frame from the flood and when Noah and his sons and his family got off the ark until the Tower of Babel. Now, follow along with me. I know this is, this is going to take a little bit of focus, but I think it's worth it. In chapter 10 and verse 25, we read about this man named Peleg. He was one of the descendants of Shem, all right? Shem, Shem is one of the blessed sons, and it was from Shem eventually that Abram would come, and eventually that Jesus would come, all right? So that is the son Shem, and that's where his story goes. Now, one of his descendants, verse 25, was named Peleg, and we're told in verse 25 that Peleg, in his days, the earth was divided, 
In his days, the earth was divided. Now, I believe that that is a reference to the Tower of Babel, the the splitting up of all of the people, the confusion of the languages where God disperses them. It was in his days that the earth was divided. Referring to the scattering of the nations following the Tower of Babel. And if we look in chapter 11, verses 10 through 16, we're not going to do the math this morning, but if you add up the ages of these fathers until they had their sons, and you go from Shem to Peleg, you get 101. 101 years. From the time that Shem got off of the ark until Peleg was born. That's not very long. That's not a lot of time that has passed from when God destroyed the earth, when he wiped out every living thing on the face of the earth because of the increasing corruption, to the time now when Peleg is born and during Peleg's lifetime is when the Tower of Babel and the city of Babel was constructed and God looked down on it with displeasure. When they were flying right in the face, contrary to God's will. That's not a lot of time that has passed. So soon after God flooded the earth, So soon after such a clear command was given to Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, mankind is backsliding toward disobedience and rebellion. Such a short time. What's gone wrong? I asked myself, how could that happen so quickly? It's a sinful nature. This is what we are prone to. This is what we will gravitate toward. And I I offer this as a warning to all of us. Backsliding can happen more quickly than you think. It can happen quickly. And so what are we to do? How are we to guard against such behavior going against God's clear word? Well, first I would offer to you simply know God's word. You have to know God's word. I don't know if for Nimrod and in this time, if it was ignorance, maybe this had not been passed along. They did not have the written word of God. So they were counting on just the oral tradition, this being passed along from father to son to grandson to to great grandson, oral tradition. I don't know if they failed in that, and so it was ignorance, or if it was a willful disobedience. But they went against God's word. The first thing is to know God's word. Spend time reading it. Spend time studying it. Spend time 
meditating upon it. Even if it's a verse, a verse in a day to take time with God's word. It's so important. And, and I don't want to crush anybody with this and say, you know, it has to be an hour every day before the sun is up and, and you need to dig into all of the lang- language. No. If you read a verse or a few minutes and just take something with you and make it a point to just think on that through the day, how fruitful that will be. Allow God's word to get into you. That's what I mean when I say know God's word. Not just intellectually, but work to get it into you. This is what the psalmist wrote in 119 verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So that's the first thing. is to know God's word to evaluate where you are in your intake of God's word. And next, I would say to trust God's spirit. Know God's word and trust God's spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And he says that the spirit will guide us into all truth in John chapter 16. Apart from the spirit of God, the word of God just falls flat. It lays flat. We need the spirit of God. When we are preaching God's word, when we are reading God's word, when we are sharing God's word with friends and family, coworkers, neighbors, whoever it might be, we need God's spirit to be at work and to trust God's spirit. That means that when the spirit prompts you to pray, that you pray that you don't ignore that. When the Spirit prompts you to reach out to that person, that you make that phone call. When he gives you encouraging words to share with someone, that you share those words. And when he prompts you to be quiet, that you be quiet. That you withhold unedifying words when he, forgives, when he forbids you. Trust God's Spirit. Along with the spirit being the spirit of truth, Jesus then goes on to say that he will glorify me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring glory to Jesus. And what were the people about in the building of the Tower of Babel? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Does that sound like bringing glory to Jesus, lifting high the name of Jesus? Not at all. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to glorify ourselves. That is not a work of the Spirit. We have to know God's Word. We have to trust God's Spirit. And then we need to put God's word into practice. We need to do God's word. It's great to know it. It's great to have it get into your mind and into your heart. And it's great when God's word finds its way out of you. What I mean by that is it being expressed. 
Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And so as you're living, as you're moving, as you're speaking, as you're thinking, as you're doing, God's word will help guard you. So you do God's word. That it finds expression in your life. And not just in the grand and the fantastic. I'm talking about the simple and the mundane as well, the seemingly mundane. I don't believe that there is the, the necessarily mundane of obedience to God's word. But sometimes it might seem that way. It might seem so small. It might seem so insignificant but that we obey God's word, even in those small ways. So church, I want to encourage you in that, but before we move on in our text and in our study this morning, to think about that. Think about what intake of God's word looks like in your life, and to think about what the work of the Holy Spirit looks like. Are you tuned in? Are are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you responding to the prompts of the Holy Spirit as a spirit wants to lead and guide you into the truth, into God's word, and into glorifying Jesus so that then you actually do God's word? You begin to live it out? These are important. They seem so basic. They're fundamental. They're important. So verse 5 of chapter 11, this rebellion against God's command, let us build ourselves a city, let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Verse 5 really serves as kind of the pivot point in what we're looking at this morning. What we've seen so far are the plans of man. Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel. It's all about man, man centered, man focused, wanting to glorify man. And now in verse five, the Lord comes down. And from this point forward, what we're going to be looking at is the purpose of God. From the plans of man to the purpose of God. And I want you to see the irony in verse five. The Tower of Babel, this great structure, right? When I used to picture the Tower of Babel, growing up in the Midwest, I, I, I thought of grain elevators, right? They're just like a rickety framework and a staircase going up to the top. Those are some of my early childhood memories where we would go up these grain elevators, and they weren't very grand. They weren't very tall. Uh, They weren't much to look at. And I used to picture in my mind the Tower of Babel, just like this rickety staircase being kind of held together. But the Tower of Babel was not that. It was really uh, what what commentators and, and, and what historians and theologians have been able to discern, a pretty grand structure, big bricks, 
mortared together with tar, pitch, and it would have been something that would have been impressive to look at and to see. And, and on the top of this would have been a place likely where they would go to worship. It would get them closer to God, closer to the sky where God would dwell. And so there's this grand tower of Babel, this great structure that would have just commanded attention and would have even made you stand in awe at its size, its grandeur. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Even with the greatest thing that man can build, look at how big it is. And God has to come down. He gets down on his hands and knees almost is how I picture it. And he's looking like, is that it? Wow. You see it? He has to come down even with the greatest thing that man can build. Our God is so much greater. Our God is so much higher. Our God is so much more grand that he has to descend all this way to come down and to see it. In verse 6, he says, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This isn't spoken as a commendation. God isn't saying, great work, you guys. Nimrod and and that tower, you guys did excellent. You are all one now, one people, one language. And there is no stopping you. This is only the beginning of what you'll be able to do. It's not a commendation. He's not giving them praise for what they have done. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God isn't threatened either. He's not up there wringing his fists and saying, oh no, how am I going to stop them? They've come together. They've joined forces. And this is not looking good. No, that's not the stance of God. God is looking upon what they're doing and seeing the beginning of their rebellion, and he realizes they are only going to progress in evil and progress in disobedience. This is only the beginning of what they're going to do. They've disobeyed me now in all coming together in refusing to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, and it's only going to get worse. This is not unity in Babel. True unity does not exist where man circles the wagons to exalt man. They wanted to make a name for themselves. No, true unity is when the wagons are circled around the glory of God to magnify his name and to glorify his works. It's ultimately one purpose of God. One purpose of God, and that is to glorify his name. That's our chief end. That's our purpose. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And because God is a holy God, glorification of himself is in no way sinful, is in no way wrong, as it would be if we were to work to try to glorify ourselves, because we are sinful. We are imperfect. And so glorifying ourselves would be aiming so much lower than what the highest aim is. But God is perfect. And so glorifying himself is the highest aim, the highest goal, the greatest prize. And so God comes down and he sees all that is taking place. And then he says in verse seven, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. This isn't God wanting to stop unity or innovation or progress. He is wanting to stop rebellion. Uh, He's wanting to stop disobedience. He's wanting to stop evil. This is an intervening grace of God. When he comes in and he puts a stop to what they are doing, when he gives confusion to them so that they don't even understand each other, this is God stopping them before they just go headlong off of the cliff. Confusion. God brings confusion. Confusion is a mixing up, a blurring, a confounding. I did just a quick study on this word confusion this week and how it's used in the Bible. Confusion, it's clear is not to be a characteristic of God's people. Confusion should not be. We read in Scripture of God bringing confusion as a judgment. It's a judgment. It's one of the curses for disobedience. It's brought as a judgment, but for God's people walking in God's ways, confusion would not be present. So God sends confusion on foreign armies. There are different times in scripture where you read about an army gathering against Israel and then all of a sudden they're fighting against themselves and killing each other because God sends confusion upon them. So he sends confusion on foreign armies. He sends confusion on idol worshipers and God sends confusion in response to rebellion against his will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33, we read this, that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so God comes down, he sees their rebellion And what they are doing with the Tower of Babel, and he brings confusion so that they are scattered. Are there things that perhaps you have been endeavoring to do in your life that are making things blurry? 
Are there things that you are endeavoring to do in your life that are robbing you of peace? Are there towers that you've been working to build? Are there towers that you've been hoping to climb to the top of that are causing a mix-up in your life? Now, there's a difference between walking in faith and walking in confusion. And I don't want us to get those two mixed up. Walking in faith, we may not see where we are going. We may not know what the next step is. And that's walking in faith, and that's trusting God. But walking in confusion means you're going in circles. Walking in confusion means that there's no peace in what you're doing. And when we are walking in faith, we may be uncertain. We may even be scared. But God will grant peace. So a tower... Understand, a tower in and of itself is not an evil thing, not a bad thing. But what made this tower wrong is that it was built so man would be exalted and they would not have to obey God's command to spread out over the whole earth. And we need to keep that in mind as we think about the things that we endeavor to do as well. They may not be inherently evil or bad. They could even be good things that we are, are, are thinking we are endeavoring to do. Directions that we are trying to go. But are they contrary to God's purposes and God's plans for you? Is this an education in, in your home? Maybe a bank account, maybe the way that you utilize a computer or the way that you invest yourself in your job. None of those are inherently good or evil, but are we following God's purpose and plans in those? Would you press on? Would you push through in a state of confusion and lack of peace? Or rather, allow the Lord to establish your steps because God is faithful to do that. He tells us time and again in his word, we will plan our way, but the Lord is the one who will establish our steps. The steps of man are established by the Lord, Psalm 37, when he delights in his way. When we delight in God, when God is delighting in us, the steps of man are established by the Lord. And so God comes down, he confuses them, he scatters them, disperses them over the face of all the earth, and this is intervening grace that scatters and disperses, and it is intervening grace so that God's purpose might be accomplished in them and through them that they might be regathered and ultimately rejoined in true unity, which only takes place finally in Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at the last part of chapter 11 that we're studying this morning, verses 10 through 26, 
we read in verse 10 that these are the generations of Shem. We read in chapter 10 about Shem and Ham and Japheth and the nations that came from them. And now here in verse 10, we have more detail. We have a repeat of Shem and his line. And why is that? Well, if you look down to verse 26, from Shem's line, when Terah had lived for 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So this genealogy, this line, ultimately now brings us to Abram. Abram descended from Shem, descended from Noah, descended from Seth, who descended from Adam. And we can see this line being drawn. We can trace this all the way back to Adam and to the promise of the one who had crushed the head of the serpent. And we can even, in our Bibles, we can trace this line going forward also. If you were to read in Luke chapter 3, you can read the line of Shem. And from Shem to Peleg, to Abram, to Jesus. This is the one purpose of God. The glory of God, which would be most clearly seen in the glory of the cross as Jesus would come and he would live and he would die and he would redeem all of those who had rebelled against him. All of those who had fallen in sin, even through our first father, Adam. Church, I'm so thankful that we have a heavenly father who knows all, who sees all, a God who is sovereign over all. Even like we try to lead our children, and we do so imperfectly, but we try to lead them and direct them, but God perfectly leads and directs us. And he directs all things according to his purpose and according to his plans, and it's for our good and for his glory. And I want you to take hold of that this morning, that when we go contrary to God's purpose and God's plans, it is no longer for our good. When we submit to his will, when we take in his word, when we trust in his spirit, and when we live out his word, it is for our good and for his glory. And that God is constantly working toward redemption and toward salvation because that is where God's glory is most clearly manifest in Jesus, our Redeemer. Our Father is a good God. And church, we can follow his good purpose and his good plans. Would you pray with me? Father, I do ask this morning that you would help us in this. Our flesh rises up. We have this sinful nature that we still carry around. We struggle. We fight. We, we war. 
And Lord God, our desire is to do your will. Our desire is to bring honor and glory to your name. Our desire is to find our place in your purpose and in your plans. And I pray for each and every one of us that that desire would only be increasing and growing that there would be more and more of a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in our lives, and that you would grant that by your spirit. I pray that we as a church would be known as those who are Jesus lovers, that we are those who want to lift high the name of Jesus because it is in Jesus that the glory of God is most clearly seen that we can relate to, that we can understand, that we can cling to, that we can turn to, that we can fall before you and know that we are accepted by what Jesus has done for us. Father, continue to mold and to shape us, to transform us according to your word, by your will, and in the power of your spirit. Take this word and work it into our hearts, not just now in this first hearing of it, but even through this week as we meditate on it, as we chew on it, as we think about it, as we look to find ways to live it out, as we see how it applies to Monday morning and to Wednesday afternoon and to Saturday, Lord, I pray that your word would be working in us throughout this week. Let us not forget your word. Let us not close our Bibles from here and leave and forget what we have seen as we have reflected upon your word. Help us to be wise and to meditate and to think on and to apply your word to our lives and to be changed by it to the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.